Galatians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Lord God, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word. Holy Spirit, you breathed through the pen of the Apostle Paul because you wanted your church to have this. This is your letter, not to the churches of Galatia alone, but this is a letter to us this morning. God, there's truths that you want us to walk out of this place this morning, written in our hearts on fleshly tablets not with ink, not on paper, but by the power of the Holy Spirit written on our hearts. How shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to thy word. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Lord God, help us as we read this even now, God, to be our teacher. We have an anointing from the Holy One so that no one can be deceived and we don't need any human to teach. God, I am simply your instrument. May people hear the words of Christ and not me. And God, if I start to get in the way, Lord... Holy Spirit, prick my heart. May I be crucified with Christ, as Paul said in this letter. And those that are Christ have crucified their desires and their lusts. And so, God, today, as we open up this new letter, as we embark on this new journey through the book of Galatians, God, we just ask that you would prosper it, God, that you would grow us, that we would understand the power of your free grace to transform us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world or age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so quickly from the one who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? 
or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be the bondservant of Christ. You may be seated. Boy, Galatians 1.10 always convicts me. It cuts, cuts me right down to the, to the core. If I seek to please men, I'm no longer the doulos, the slave of Jesus. Um, this letter, boy, it just it doesn't beat around the bush, does it? Um, there's not a whole lot of tact in Paul's addressing the Galatians. It doesn't ease them into it. He doesn't thank God for them. He doesn't praise the Lord for their their spirituality, their growth. Uh, it just it just comes right off the pages. Very very sharp, very abrupt, right to the point. Paul didn't have time to mince with his words, and it was such a serious serious deviation from the gospel that Paul had to address it immediately and he had to address it with force. This is so uncharacteristic of any of Paul's letters. You find usually a a glowing thanksgiving, even praises. The the, the Corinthian church, probably one of the the most dysfunctional churches in the New Testament. Um, I remember driving down the road in a in Georgia, and of course you got Baptist churches on every corner, and I guess they were out of names because everybody else had every gotten all the the good names, and so that was Corinth Baptist Church. <laughs> I thought, why would you? <laughs> Maybe they had all kinds of problems in that church. Maybe they had church splits. You know, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of that guy. <laughs> I don't know why you would name yourself that, but anyway, even that church got a glowing Thanksgiving for their spirituality and the gifts that the Corinthian church had, in fact, in spite of the fact that they abused them. But there's no thanksgiving. And it's, it's very noticeable when you read this letter that there's a sharp tone. In fact, Paul says in this letter, he says, I wish I was with you so that I could change my tone. Galatians 4.20. He says, I, I feel like a, a mother who is going through labor all over again trying to birth this child. And, and so you see that Paul is, has got a lot of anxiety, a, a lot of fear. In fact, he says, I fear for you lest somehow I labored in vain for you. So this letter starts out with a, a, an extreme abrupt manner, almost to the point of rudeness. And the reason so is because the gospel of grace has been undermined. And we at North Valley Bible Church, we believe that God is most glorified in His grace that provides salvation for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. That is how God is most glorified. Now, God is glorified in a lot of different ways. But I believe, and I hope we as a church believe, that His provision for all people brings Him the most glory. And He ends this salutation with these words, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul, 
gives a lot of doctrine even in this little introduction. He tells us where grace and peace come from. Grace, to def, the definition of grace, and you can look it up in different theological journals or dictionaries and get all sorts of definitions, but I, I think the simple definition of this is, is sufficient. Grace is the supernatural enablement that forgives and transforms. That's what grace is. It is a supernatural enablement. We don't have the ability on our own to earn forgiveness. Therefore, we need grace. And grace is the ability not only to forgive, Grace is the ability to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. We are to grow in the grace of Christ. So it's something that we can grow deeper in. Grace is the merciful kindness of God. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Grace is God extending His holy influence into your soul. That's what changes us. It's God extending His holy, transforming influence into our inner being. Grace to you, He says to these Galatian believers and to us this morning. Grace turns us to Christ. Grace keeps us saved. It's not by merit. It's not by our own works. It's not by our own effort that keeps us saved. Now unto Him who's able to keep you from falling. We are preserved in Christ Jesus by His grace. Grace strengthens us. It increases us in our Christian faith. It is grace that we grow in our affection and our kindness toward one another. Grace is kindled when we come to Christ with humility. And then God begins to develop Christian virtues. And the virtue that He mentions here is peace. Peace is the byproduct, byproduct of grace. Peace is the result of justifying grace, isn't it? Therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God the Father. Peace, the definition of peace. It's a state of mind. It has nothing to do with your circumstances. Isn't that good news? Because we need peace this morning. You and I cannot affect our circumstances, but God can affect our peace. Jesus said this, my peace I leave with you. Let not your heart be troubled. So peace is a state of mind. It's not our circumstances. Peace is that tranquility of heart through the power of Christ's reconciliation. That's what reconciliation is, isn't it? It brings peace between two people or two parties that were at enmity with one another. And grace is the power to bring those two parties together, having therefore been justified. Then we have peace. It's on the cross that we see this demonstrated. Peace is the rest that your soul enjoys when it has effectively experienced divine grace. So we see that Christ gave himself. What greater gift could he give than give himself? 
For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might be enriched. Christ gave himself. And why did he give himself? I've heard many, many preachers say this, and, and it sounds wonderful, but I don't know if it's biblical, and I, I suppose it is, but I think it misses the point that God gave himself for God. And, and in many senses, he did. And the fear is that if we say that God gave himself for us, that it's somehow a man-centered gospel. But to be honest with you, the gospel is man-centered. It is about us. It's about what we need. He gave himself for us. On our behalf, he died. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Bible. He died for us. It is man-centered because man has a super, super gulf to fix that he can't reach on his own. And that's our separation from God. And it's because of our sin. And so that little preposition, the word for, means on behalf of or instead of. We don't get what we deserve. We get what Christ bore on the cross for you and I, and that is his perfect righteousness. He died. He gave himself. He gave himself for our sins. And here's the purpose, that he might deliver us. We need to be delivered, don't we? We need to be rescued. I don't know where you were at when you were saved, but I know I was at a bad place. My sin had offended a holy God, and there was nothing I could do to rescue myself. And it was Christ who gave himself, and he gave it for my sin, so that he might rescue me and deliver me. We are not saved so that we can live in our sin, are we? We are sin saved to conform us into the image of Christ, and that is the will of God our Father. And so in this, this, this introduction, Paul is giving a lot of theology here. And he gave himself, and I believe that this is the keynote of the epistle. The keynote of the epistle is right here, to deliver us from this present evil age. That is the gospel. Nothing else can deliver. You can't add law to that. You can't add works to that. You can't add merit to that. You can't add catechism to that. You can't add baptism to that. Nothing. No circumcision, no law keeping, no ordinances, absolutely nothing. He gave himself to deliver us out of this present evil age. And what is the present evil age? It's emancipating freedom that now surrounds us. To come to Christ, we need to understand that we were in bondage, don't we? And now the Galatian Christians were in danger to going back to bondage, to weaker, beggarly elements. In fact, those are the words that he uses later in chapter 4 and chapter 5. How is it that now that you desire to go back into weak and beggarly elements which will bring you into bondage? Don't let anybody put a yoke of bondage on you. How is it when you knew God, or rather now that you were known by God, you turn back to weak and beggarly elements which you desire to be in bondage again to? And he's talking about religion. That's what he's talking about in this book. 
And so he delivered us from the present evil age of religion and even good things. Tracy and I, with the teenagers, watched a video on Friday night. It was an amazing story of a man who went to Burma, and he trained these Burmese Christians up in the mountains how to be medics and how to uh, just take uh, relief to people who are displaced. And then they were called to go to Iraq, and they did the same thing there. And at the end of the film, the man said, God, I want to hear your voice. I don't want to fall into the rut of the sin and its quagmire, and I don't want to fall into the rut of doing all these good things either. I want to find that place where you have called me. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Both of them are a rut. The religious things, the good things, and all those things that, that we think are spirituality. And then on the other side, and that's what we've been delivered out of, this present evil age. When God delivers us from the power of the prevailing, dominating evil, it is to conform us and to enable us to, living, to live according to His desires. And God is most glorified in this. Now Paul starts right into his letter here. And he says in the present tense, I marvel. I am marveling. So when the readers open this letter, they're reading in the present tense. And he's saying, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm on my second missionary journey probably. I've just finished the Jerusalem Council. I've just gone through Galatia, the churches of Lystra and Derby and Iconium. And before I could even get on my second missionary journey, I've already got a report that this church is now defecting from the gospel. And so he, he, it's like a wake-up call. And the first, re, first reason that he marvels is that they were turning away. It's a middle voice in the original language, which means they were turning themselves away. They were making a cognitive choice to walk away from what they knew was true. Now, they had been deceived. They had been, been led astray by some people, but... Paul knew that they'd heard the gospel. Verse 9, I don't think Paul is saying that I said to you before. If I, anybody preaches another, Paul had no reason to say that the first time when he was in the Galatian churches. If somebody comes behind me and preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. No, he's saying that after verse 8. That's how powerful and that's how straightforward he is about this. So he says, I'm marveling because you're turning yourself away. And then he says, because it's so soon. I tell you, the danger of a zealous young believer is what Paul's talking here. He says, you were zealous and now these people came and they courted you zealously so that you might affect their message. He says, it's good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing. But you guys are turning away and now you're being zealous for the wrong thing. And it happens so quickly. And if we continue through this verse, we will see that they turn from him who called you. God always makes the divine initiative, doesn't he? We don't seek the Lord. No man seeks the Lord. We are to seek after him after he starts to draw us, yes. John chapter 6 and verse 44, no man can come to the Father unless he draws him. 
We believe that. We believe that the Holy Spirit does that work. It is God who came seeking you and I. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And Paul says, I am dumbfounded. I'm amazed that you are leaving the one who came seeking after you. Now, God has appointed our predetermined times and our boundaries. Why? And it's not just for certain people that God does this. He does this for all people that we might seek the Lord. God has implanted a conscience in every one of us so that we might seek the Lord as he reaches out and seeks after us. So you have left the one who made a divine initiative to come and look for you. And now how he describes God. He is the one who called you in the grace of Christ. I marvel not only that you turned yourself, I marvel that you did it quickly from the one who made a divine initiative, but now you're turning from the one who called you by grace. Why would you substitute anything for grace? God is glorified for what he has done through free grace. His grace displays his nature. He died on our behalf. He delivered us from this prevailing evil age. And he is conforming us into a people that will reflect his will. And Paul is marveling that they turned away so quickly. This morning, let's understand what grace does. Grace meets us right where we are at. Grace forgives us completely. Grace transforms us into the image of Jesus. Grace gives us peace with God our Father. Grace gives us a relationship with God who is seeking after us. Why would we ever want to substitute anything for grace? Now Paul goes into the glaring difference between his gospel and what these troublemakers were preaching. Verse 7. He says, this gospel is a different gospel. There's two words in the original language for another. One means another of a different kind, and one means another of the same kind. And Paul very rarely puts them back to back. But here he does it because what he's trying to emphasize, he's saying, it's really not even good news. It is bad news. If you have to try to save yourself, you have substituted good news for bad news, is what he's saying. The good news that they proclaim on the mountaintops is preaching peace, isn't it? That's the good news. Jesus walked into the synagogue, and he found the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, God has sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to set captives free and to recovering sight of the blind and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And if you change it in the least bit, it's no longer the gospel. It's a different gospel. I marvel. Paul goes right to the point because this has serious ramifications, not only for their salvation, it has ramifications for their entire spiritual life. Now, I believe that these Galatian Christians were born again. 
I believe that they were saved. I believe that they were regenerated. And that's why Paul has such a passion for them. But if they start to go down this route of changing the gospel in the slightest way, it's also going to change the way they view sanctification. And that is the danger for you and I, isn't it? I don't think any of us are going to try to say that we have to work our way to salvation. But somehow we get the mindset that, okay, God did that, now I've got to do this, and I've got to do X, Y, and Z in order to be really spiritual. And that's where it gets really kind of sticky, and, and we'll, we'll look more in the, as we go through the book of Galatians that, to open those things up. But right now, he's defending the gospel. He's exposing the so-called troublemakers. Paul had learned on the Damascus Road, hadn't he, of how fruitless and how bankrupt the law is to change and transform anybody. He had pursued the law as a way of righteousness his entire life. And yet he knew that it was completely powerless to change him. He was completely frustrated. Fundamentally, you and I are spiritually bankrupt. We've got to come to that understanding to understand the gospel, don't we? That we are fundamentally spiritually bankrupt. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, bankrupt, those who have absolutely nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul knew that devotion to legalism was not only powerless to transform him, but it also changed him into a person that began to persecute those who did live in Christ. And that's the danger of the law system, is now we become a judge rather than a doer of the law, and Paul began to attack, or not Paul, but the, the Galatian Christians began to attack one another. The character of the preacher matters, doesn't it? But it's, I find it pretty amazing that Paul says the message is way more important than even the messenger. Messengers are going to mess up. We're frail. We're fragile. We've got all kinds of sin dunked on every one of us, don't we? And so Paul says... It's not even the messenger that really matters. Ultimately, they, they, I mean, we've got to be clean vessels for God to use us. We don't want to be a stumbling block to the unbelieving world, obviously. But Paul says, even if we, even if an angel, because the message is paramount, it is the absolute unchanging, adulterated gospel that saves, it is the unchanging unadulterated gospel that grows us into the likeness of Jesus. So even if an angel comes and preaches something different, even if an apostle comes, it is not the messenger that's so important, it is the message that we are preaching. The law-based gospel is so dangerous because it leaves people devoid of assurance. I was talking with a brother this morning, talking about how 
I doubt my salvation. He looked at me and says, yeah, I doubt my salvation. Not that we're both doing it right now. But throughout our Christian life, we've come to those places in the road and we said, am I really a believer? And here's the danger of legalism. The danger of legalism, the danger of elevating the law is you will never have assurance. You're always going to battle sin. I'm sorry to say that this morning. I wish there was some kind of panacea that we could just take the Kool-Aid this morning. And boy, God just put a magic wand. I don't even want to use the word magic. Forgive me, Lord. Some kind of, some kind of you know, bewitching. That's Paul's word. And, and they had been bewitched, hadn't they? thinking that now somehow that they can achieve righteousness through God's law-keeping. All it can do is show me that I am guilty. And it leaves you devoid of assurance. I love what the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary said, Francis Schaeffer. They ask him, when you stand before God, how do you know, how can you have the audacity? They were interviewing him and really trying to grill him. How do you have the audacity to say that you know you'll be in heaven? He says, because Jesus paid it all. That's where our assurance lies this morning, isn't it? Jesus paid it all. Now let's look at our motive I really didn't cover verse 9 very well. I just, it's a, re, a reiteration of verse 8. And as I studied it this week, at first I thought that maybe Paul had said that when he was in Galatia. And then as I prayed and meditated on that passage, I, I think he's just saying it over again, just for the sake of, of emphasizing that let's don't mess with this gospel one iota. Our motive. What is our motive? Freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we are inconsistent. I think Paul is being accused of being inconsistent. And so verse 10, he's defending the gospel. Look at the word for. The word for is defending or giving an explanation, giving an argument for the verse preceding it. Let him be accursed. For now do I persuade. Now, there's many ways to translate that word persuade. It can be translated to encourage someone to trust something. And that's the basic and root meaning of that Greek word. And all of my students know the word pytho. It means to trust. It means to influence someone to believe something. And so I think the King James translators and the New King James translation has it correct. Other translations say, Are, am I now trying to win the favor of men? Paul only uses this word persuade one other time, and it's in first, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, where he says, now knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul made it his objective in life to persuade 
people, to persuade them to come to faith in Christ. And so Paul, Paul is saying, now am I trying to persuade men? Am I trying to bring them to Jesus? And the answer is yes. He's not trying to appease God in any way. In, in this, we, we, we get a time difference here. We get the word now, and then in the second half of this verse, we get the word still. So Paul is being accused of flip-flopping. He's being accused of changing his message in order to suit his listeners. And, and here's the beauty that I want us to see this morning, that freedom in Christ gives you and I all kinds of liberty to use all kinds of methods, whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus as long as we don't compromise the message. Paul says, I am persuading men and I never change the message. I have changed my method many times because of my Christian liberties and my Christian freedoms. So I'd like for us just to go over to 1 Corinthians and, and just look at this principle, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we can see the way that Paul persuaded men. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And you can see his Christian freedom here. You can see his liberty. And they were trying to bring Paul under bondage. They were trying to spy out his liberty in Christ, chapter 2, so that they might bring him into bondage. And Paul says, I did not subject myself to them even for one hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain in you. And so Paul says, I can use any legitimate method that does not bring sin into my life or discredit the message in any way. So in verse 19, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, For though I am free from all men. Paul says, I've got Christian liberty. I can do it however I choose to do as long as I'm not violating the moral laws of God. I'm free. I have made myself rather a servant to all. What Paul is saying here... <clears throat> is that my different ways of doing things, I will take my liberty and I will give up what I want to do in order that I might reach more people. So don't think I'm changing my message at all. I'm doing it for one purpose, he says, so that I can be the servant of all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. They were accusing Paul of changing his methods. He says, am I now persuading men or do I seek to please men? I've never changed my message. I've never tried to please men. And when I do please men, my motive is pure. And that is because I want to win men. And when I change my method, it is so that I become a servant to other people. You want to know how to use your Christian freedom and use your Christian liberty? You use it to be a servant to other people. Then Paul goes on to say, when I was with the Jews, I was like the Jews. In fact, he took a Nazarite vow, didn't he? Went up to Jerusalem, cut his hair. He um, ate, ate with Gentiles. 
um, those who were without the law as under the, out without the law to win them to Christ. That those who were without law as without law. And look what he says here, being, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became the weak. That I might win the weak. To the, I become all things to all men that by all means I might save son. Now I do this for what? For the gospel's sake. So there's not an inconsistency in our motives when we use our Christian liberty to serve others and to bring people into the Christian family. Persuading men should be our passion. We have been reconciled to God, and now we are ambassadors as though God were pleading through us. Be ye reconciled to God. We don't need to concern ourselves about people's assessments, do we? If our aim is to please God, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about us. If that's our desire, if that is our motive, people's assessment don't matter. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians where they were assessing him all the time. He says, let a man so account of me as a minister of Christ. The word for minister is an under rower. I'm just like a galley slave, and I'm a minister, I'm an under rower to Christ. And then he says, I am a steward. I am a household manager of the mysteries of Christ. Moreover, let a man think of a steward that he must be faithful. And he says, I don't even judge myself. And he says, it's a small thing if I be judged by you or be called into assessment by a human court. It doesn't matter because Paul says, I am pleasing God and I am persuading people. And so I'm going to use my Christian liberty however I see fit as long as I am subordinating myself to be a servant to others. We don't need to be concerned about people's assessment. It's only God that matters. And Paul says, when I am in this kind of mindset... And this helps every one of us because I know I am guilty of this probably more than anybody else. And that is trying to be a placator to people so as not to offend them. And Paul says, I won't go that way either. I don't ever compromise the truth as to appease people and I don't flatter people, he says in 1 Thessalonians. He says, I was never with you with flattery of words of men's speech. He never tried to build people up just to get them to convince them to believe in the gospel. Those who are under Christian liberty please men only when they are subordinate to their own interests. Let me say this again. Under Christian liberty, pleasing men is only when we are subordinating our own interests with the goal of bringing people to salvation. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul said, All things are lawful for me. But then he went on to say, But all things are not expedient. They don't advance the truth. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They don't build people up. Let, let no one seek his own, but every man another's will. As slaves of Christ, 
We are unceasingly at Christ's disposal to be used for his glorious kingdom. As slaves, we cannot afford to serve two masters. So this letter, Paul is so abundantly clear that his apostleship came straight from the Lord. His gospel comes straight from the Lord. It is a gospel of free grace. It is a gospel that causes us to be conformed in the image of Christ. To deviate from that gospel brings us lack of comfort. It brings us lack of assurance. And lastly, it distorts the way that we grow as a Christian. How do we apply this this morning? When we please God, we will also be persuading people. That is what pleases God. When you and I are persuading people to come to Christ, this is what pleases Him. God is most glorified in His gracious provision for all mankind. We distort the gospel when we add anything to it. We're very clear on that this morning, aren't we? The implications of the gospel of grace affects the way that we live the Christian life and it affects the way that we view one another. The true gospel has an infinite reservoir to transform. I find that so comforting today. The true gospel, only the true gospel, nothing else, nothing else has the power to change you. Only the gospel. It stands in vivid contrast to formalism. The true gospel stands in contrast to the impossible demands of the law. The true gospel brings you and I freedom rather than bondage. Grace and forgiveness is the only remedy for human sin. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. I don't know the problems. I don't know the issues of, of, of hardly any of you because those are between you and the Lord. But there's only one remedy this morning. There's only one remedy. You might be a believer and you're still struggling with a besetting sin. There is only one remedy, and that is the power of Jesus Christ and His grace alone. You fall before Him and you plead and you ask for His transforming grace. And then you put on that new man that you received by grace. And by grace you put off the old man with all of his deeds. It's all found in Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Grace and forgiveness is not only the remedy for your sin, but it is the remedy for the sorrow that your sin brings with it. The gospel must be protected from all subtle infusions of human reasoning and human works. Young believers and old believers alike 
are tempted and are susceptible to the influences of law and good works because it sounds so wise in human understanding. But it has no power to transform and it has no power to sanctify. Now, is this a gospel of licentiousness? Absolutely not. When you understand grace, when you understand the cross, when you understand your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, God forbid that I would ever use that as an excuse to live how I want to. So this morning, there's a lot that we can learn from this paragraph. But I want to leave us with just this one thought again. If I still please men, I would not be the bond servant of Christ. This week, let's make it our aim to say, Lord Jesus, I am your slave. I am your bond servant. God, you have set me free to become your slave. And now, God, how can I use my freedom? God, how can I use my liberty in Christ to spread your good news, your gospel that's free grace? God, just show me how I can do that, how I can be a servant to all people because I become a servant to Christ. Father, God, I hope the Holy Spirit takes your word this morning and writes something in our hearts that we can take away. God, most of all, Lord, God, I pray that, that this afternoon, that God, that we will just get alone somewhere. We'll go to a closet. We'll go to a quiet room. And we'll get on our knees. And we will thank you that your gospel was free. That your salvation was a free gift. That, God, I did not merit it, I did not deserve it, but you lavishly poured it out on me. God, I pray today that in that quiet place that we're going to take this afternoon, that we are going to feel and we are going to sense your peace. And then thirdly, God, we are going to ask you, Lord, to take your grace and infuse it into my life to transform me to become more like your son this week. Lord God, if we will do those simple things, you will take this teaching today and bless it and honor it. God forbid that we would walk out of here and forget what you taught us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.